years ago when Brent Curtis and I were writing Sacred Romance, one of the films that was very compelling to us at the time, especially in understanding the works of the enemy, was the movie about Mozart that was called Amadeus, his middle name, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Because in the film Amadeus, there is a Satan-like character who just so articulately exposes the motives of the enemy against our lives, our hearts, our glory. So we're going to pick up with that as we come back to the final installment in a series on envy. Did you see the movie or the play Amadeus? Yeah, I saw the movie. The Life of Mozart? Yes. It's been a number of years now. What was the name of the character? The villain? Yes. I don't remember his name. I just remember his speech. Oh, my gosh. He's the court composer, I think. He's kind of like the highest musician in the land. Yes. Salieri. That's his name. And and there's that wonderful, horrible scene. Mozart, despite how brilliant he is, can't get work. And so his wife secretly, unbeknownst to him, brings his music, his his composition, his actual charts to Salieri, who's kind of the head musician in the land and, and can get Mozart a job, you know, teaching music to the king's daughter or niece or something like that. And, and I remember Salieri first, just his marvel. And and in the movie, they do this beautiful thing where as he just sort of flips from sheet to sheet and chart to chart, they they play the music. Yes. You know, so you're hearing this, you know, this fantastic um, opera. And then the next thing you're hearing this unbelievable symphony and and then this quartet. And Solieri is flipping through these pages and he's looking at these and he, he says to his wife, these are originals? And she says, oh, yes, he doesn't make copies. He just writes that down. And Salieri, he says something like, this is miraculous. And she says, so you'll help us? And the scene that takes place, he drops the music on the floor. He just scatters the pages, walks on them as he leaves the room, goes into the next chamber, which apparently is like his personal apartment. Right? Yes. Remember what he does? Oh, my goodness. His speech against God, where you then get his internal life. And he just talks about that while others have these incredible musical gifts, he has only the ability to recognize their capacity. And then, like Satan in Paradise Lost, what he resolves to do out of his offense and envy is he says to God, I will fight against your creation. Friends, welcome back to the Ransom Heart Podcast. John Eldridge and my son Blaine here in episode four of a series on envy. And we've just been trying to unpack this thing that is so predominant in our culture today, so predominant, sadly, in the church. It's just everywhere and doing lots of damage, but actually not being named. Um, And the damage goes two ways, gang. The damage is, of course... um, my goodness, we don't want this in our own hearts. We don't want this in our own relationships. Uh, Proverbs says, envy rots the bones. You do not want this festering in you. But it also does damage when it comes at 
you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's far more difficult for many people to recognize that. Like, Mozart couldn't and didn't. He just could not believe that Salieri wouldn't just delight in the beauty of the music he was creating. Even to the point of, you don't have to like me, but isn't this wonderful? You know, like, can't we both mutually just delight in how lovely this music is? He just couldn't accept that that someone would be so set against him, like you were just describing. Yes. And so we've been trying to shed some light on envy coming in both directions. And it is um, the second of the seven deadly sins, and, and it got put in that list because— it is so poisonous. They name these seven as particularly deadly, meaning if you entertain these, they, they will just do such damage to your soul, to your relationships, and frankly, to your happiness, just to your own enjoyment of your own life. So welcome back to episode four and, and want to carry on in, in our conversation about envy. And I thought that story of Salieri was so powerful because he goes back into his apartment and he takes the crucifix off his wall, which had been up there in veneration, and he throws it in the fire Yes, as he makes that famous speech, right? And he says, from now on, you and I are enemies, right? Because you have chosen this infantile, petty, pompous boy to give these marvelous gifts to, right? And I just, it's the offended self, right? But notice this, gang. He is actually primarily offended at God. It is a painful, helpful starting place. In our last episode, we mentioned that we're all the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. In the brother's offense isn't actually yet his younger brother's return. It's at his dad's generosity. And as you were just saying, it is really helpful to look for these things in our heart because they're so poisonous. And that actually looking at like our envy and then looking at the way that it actually reflects like our disappointment with God mm-hmm. is incredibly helpful for actually kind of some of the healing of things in our heart and story with God. God. I quoted a passage from C.S. Lewis, uh, Two Ways with the Self, last time. Yeah. But just to repeat the first section again, Lewis writes, the self can be regarded in two ways. On the one hand, it is God's creature, an occasion of love and rejoicing, now indeed hateful in condition, but to be pitied and healed. Yeah. Like, there's a way of looking at yes. our frustration with God's generosity, like our confusion that we actually weren't the recipient of certain gifts that actually like God totally wants to address if we're actually able to be honest with the reality that I'm not actually frustrated that my friend just got published. I'm not actually frustrated really with my buddy being able to buy a house. I kind of and frustrated because I wish God were more generous with me, like day to day, it yeah, seems like. Exactly. So want to provide some of the road out um, here. What do we do with the self-life? How do we cultivate admiration and gratitude? But just so you know, we're not pointing fingers. We're trying to expose something. And 
just this morning as I was getting ready, I was doing some reading and pulling my notes together for this episode, I opened my own journal. I literally just flip it open, and on that particular page of the journal, I don't even remember this event, but I am confessing and renouncing resentment. Mm. And I'm like, whoa, Jesus, like, thank you for reminding me. Like, you took me through a period of time where I really had to expose resentment. And resentment is the fruit of envy. You know, it starts with, why can't I enjoy what other people enjoy? And then it goes to, well, why, why should they enjoy it at all if I can't? It moves towards resentment. Earlier in the series, we said that Envy is a destroyer, and the warfare that it'll bring against your life as people envy different parts of your your life, it really allows the enemy in to steal, kill, and destroy. I'm going to come back to uh, Dorothy Sayers and her lecture on the seven deadly sins back in the 40s, because she says something very important about where the culture was headed. As you listen to this, it's just staggering to think that this was more than 70 years ago. The years between the wars saw the most ruthless campaign of debunking ever undertaken by nominally civilized nations. Great artists were debunked by disclosures of their private weaknesses. Great statesmen by attributing to them mercenary and petty motives or by alleging that all their work was meaningless or done for them by other people. Religion was debunked and shown to consist of a mixture of craven superstition and greed. Courage was debunked. Patriotism was debunked. Learning and art were debunked. Love was debunked. And with it, family affection and the virtues of obedience, veneration, and solidarity. Age was debunked by youth and youth by age. Psychologists stripped bare the pretensions of reason and conscience and self-control saying that these were only the respectable disguises of unmentionable, unconscious impulses. Honor was debunked with peculiar virulence and good faith and unselfishness, everything that could possibly be held to constitute an essential superiority had the garments of honor torn from its back and was cast out into the darkness of derision. Civilization was finally debunked till it had not a rag left to cover its nakedness. Whoa! (laughs) When was that written? Yesterday morning? Right, right. It sounds like contemporary politics. It sounds like contemporary social media, doesn't it? It is exactly like contemporary social media, and it is the unleashed self-destroying. And what... I was noticing as you were reading through that list of its destruction, I'm like, oh my goodness, the isolated self is not actually a great creature. I think that, you know, in Paralandra, Lewis is right to compare the enemy to like an ape or a small child. Like there's no grandeur there. I'm like, wow, that is the exhausted two-year-old shouting no over and over again at the world simply out of that exhausted two-year-old's frustration. Yeah, the offended self. It's just so powerfully written. It's so ruthlessly exposing. But here's her conclusion. She says, Envy cannot bear to admire or respect. It cannot bear to be grateful. 
as I have begun to try and work my way out of this thing um, from both directions, learning to pray against it as it's coming against me and my family and our work and, and man, learning to repent of it, I've just tried to begin to pray for people who are in a better situation than me or more gifted than I am or who currently have wonderful circumstances coming their way, to just bless it. Yes. And rejoice with those who rejoice. Yes. Like, I, it, it is actually something to be learned. A fascinating question that I don't think it's asked very often of why are people gifted at all? And N.T. Wright, in his book on the kingdom, Surprised by Hope, has this great section on people's gifting. He actually writes about people in their variety and people in the splendor of exercising their gifts are actually enriching the kingdom. We're not talking about like they worked for the good of all. We're talking about a person's glory actually increases the goodness of the earth. And therefore, what you're talking about in the process of admiration, like if I can just add a plug from hedonism, admiration is actually something that is like incredibly enjoyable and meant to be like wonderful for the heart because a person's gifting makes the world better. Yes. Like, you know, I've been talking about this morning, finally the hit movie La La Land came out on video. Been waiting for forever because we have a six-month-old and can't go to the movies. But there's this scene where this gifted piano player, he has, he has this moment where he has a solo on stage as a part of this band. And like, it's amazing. You can tell that he knows it's amazing. But I had the wildest experience watching the movie. Like, first of all, I felt kind of like protected because I don't do any music ever. And so like, <laughs> there's just no room for comparison at all. But also watching this kind of like expression in an appropriate place of like this incredible gifting mm. and being able to look at it and go like, wow, it was a unique experience of that actually being like, really wonderful of, you know, I don't really want to be a jazz musician and I don't know how to play the piano. So like I had some freebies, but also looking at someone's, yes. looking at someone's gifting and it would be harder with a writer or it would be harder with someone who does visual art, but the cultivating the capacity of admiration yeah. will do wonderful things for the soul. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. And I think it's, it's one of the ways out, gang. If we could restore a culture of admiration, in our families, and rather than setting sibling against sibling and, and one family against another within a larger family system, to just be able to rejoice and, hey, did you hear that, you know, Uncle Bill and Aunt Patty just got a new boat? Like, isn't that wonderful? We're so happy for them. Genuine happiness, beginning to practice rejoicing with those who rejoice, and even praying for their success. And I'm going to push into some difficult things, but it's because we're trying to rescue our souls here. So like praying for someone else's promotion, praying for someone else's pregnancy, praying for someone else's healing, making intentional choices in those areas where you, listener, are struggling to go, I am not going to let 
what looks like inequality right now, what looks like disadvantage, what looks like God is more generous to others than to me, I am not going to let that into my soul. I'm not. And I'm going to begin by just praying blessing on their gifting. Lord, she's such a wonderful singer. I pray that she gets chosen to lead worship next week instead of me. Right? Jesus, he is such a fabulous athlete. I pray he gets picked for the team instead of me. Like, make it really personal. Yes. Right? And then just the ability, like, when you see giftedness, when you see something gloriously done, to just celebrate it. I was sharing in the first podcast, reading Anne Voskamp's new book, The Broken Way, and and just being struck, a, a little bit like Solieri, mm-hmm. being, just being struck by, these are originals? You know, like, this yes. writing, this writing, this understanding of the soul, this expression of truths is so exquisitely well done. And just being able to pause and go, Jesus, how wonderful. I had a recent experience of trying to loan a book to a friend, a novel. Like, you know, we both like working in fiction. And like, I found out several weeks later that he still hadn't read it. Mm. And I was like, hey, dude, like, you gotta read. It's really good. But what kind of came clear was, in this case, it was someone else. But I recognize this in myself, too, of like this unwillingness because he'll feel diminished or somehow slighted yes. by reading like a master of their craft. Yes. And whatever it is, like doing the opposite is just incredibly helpful out of these conversations. It's been really fascinating to watch that wrestling unfold in real time and take gifting aside. Mm. Like I've got young marriage, young family, uber young career, and... Like, kind of the interesting one for me, actually, is watching blessing in and around our community, like, success, like, a promotion or, like, some great gift or, like, I, like, am afflicted by my car breaking down. One of my older friends' grandparent just passed away and, like, left them a sensational car in an area where it feels like I'd love to be experiencing, like, mm-hmm where things are getting worked out in real time. Yes. Even then, like, reading someone's writing or looking at their painting or something. But, like, watching people with, you know, young careers, young families, young kids get blessing or, like, have some wonderful turn happen and practice being, like, even as I'm watching my heart be like, well, I feel like I'm pretty much as good at work as that guy. And, like, he makes twice as much as I do. Like, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) But, But, like, working it through and, like, as you said trying to implement like basic practices of like, mm. I pray it goes great, Jesus. Mm. I pray it goes awesome at that new thing. Oh, that's just so good. And so healing, like healing, healing, healing. Okay, so what we've been describing through this series is that envy, it flows in two directions. We, it can flow from within us, but it can also flow towards us. And that piece that I read by Dorothy Sayers on debunking just shows that envy is a destroyer. And what I thought was interesting, both in, in Fairley's book and in others I've read, is that one of the ways that envy destroys is backbiting. It's talking badly about a person. This is Henry Fairley's book, The Seven Deadly Sins Today. He says, one of the evils into which envy leads us is that of backbiting, spite, malignity, accusation, 
It is well understood that to take away someone's good name is second only to murder as an offense against them. It is itself a way of destroying them. The gossip column is the symbol of an envious age, and so is the contemporary form of the interview, which seems designed to ensure, in the same manner as the gossip column, that virtue and talent and achievement will be reduced to the level at which we can feel that we are their equals. They are just like us, even a little lower than us. Nothing is allowed to seem out of the ordinary, beyond our own abilities and even beyond our understanding. And he just goes on to talk about, just be careful how you talk about people because envy can come out in, you know, oh, did you hear about Alan and Susan's wonderful news? And yes, but did you know? You know, and then you go into, yes. Oh, I hate that stuff. Oh, yes. But, you know, you hear about it, the church that's exploding, right? But someone wants to quickly add, yes, but, you know, I just don't think that they really understand some things of the kingdom. Ouch. Oh, it's it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. And just being careful about how how we talk about others and again, both directions and also being aware that, gang, this is actually probably going on against you for the person who's trying to live a virtuous life, you don't even want to entertain the possibility that someone could be envying you because that in itself could feel prideful. Like, why would anyone be envying me? You know, and that can also come out of self-contempt and it can also come out of the lack of an ability to recognize how wonderful you actually are. But when envy is coming your direction, as we expressed in podcast number two, whether it's backbiting, whether it's judgment, whether it's resentment, it's actually something you want to cancel in prayer. Mm -hmm. Like, I bring the blood of Christ against words that are being spoken against me. Yes. You know, in Isaiah, one of the promises is you will refute every accusing tongue. Like, Jesus, I, I claim your blood against defamation. I claim your blood against gossip. I claim your blood right now against things that are being spoken against me or my spouse, my child at school, what have you. You want to cancel this stuff. Right, especially because it is literally designed to destroy. We talked about in the first episode, the envy means to look upon with malice. And so that kind of defamation, it's not just negative speech, it's cursing. It is language that is designed and intended to bring about harm and, you know, as we'll do here around around some tart to bring Jesus Christ cursed and crucified, cursed as he who hangs on a tree, to disarm uh, the curses. And as I'm praying to disarm those things, I'll just tag on, including curses of envy. Like, disarm what is being intended by both sin and brokenness in a person's life working together mm-hmm. to like get that coming your way. Yeah. And again, you might be surprised, gang. Um, you might want to ask Jesus, it, really, Lord, is some of this coming my direction? Because you might be so unaware of the warfare of envy and its power to allow the enemy to steal, kill, and destroy, which we went in in, in part two. In which case, if you were that person, I guarantee you, that someone is envying your innocence. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay, so admiration is one step out of this mire. Admiration, just learning to celebrate, to admire, to allow 
others to excel at things and just go, wow, that was so well done. Way to go. And even right down to conversation where someone's sharing good news and and just simply to celebrate it and not to have the conversation have to turn back to you at some point. Yeah, right? Just that, that thing about, well, what about me? Well, how come you're not asking me how I'm doing? You know, just the ability to celebrate, to admire, and to be honest, what that brings us to also is the ability to worship. Worship is a great cure. The worship of God is a great cure of many things. And one of the things that it quickly tames is the offended self. Yes. Some people seem more naturally inclined to worship. But if you're not one of those people, if you kind of go, yeah, sort of take leave it kind of thing. You know, I know some people enjoy listening to that stuff. Or, you know, they're the folks who stand in church and raise their hands. And and you're not that person. You actually probably ought to be the one who's standing in church and raising their hand. If it's not your natural inclination to worship, if that's not a particular skill set of yours, posture, whatever you want to describe that as. Yeah, you talk about it being the answer to the offended self. I mean, Jesus takes the throne in Revelation because he is worthy mm. and no one else is. Mm. Where is the one who is worthy to open the scroll? Like responding to the appropriate the perfectly appropriate centrality of Jesus mm. actually kind of will do wonders for your heart's understanding of its position in the world. It's just so good just to say it right now, and not just on a Sunday morning. We're talking about as a, as a lifestyle, as a practice, and you wake up in the morning, God, I love you. You're so beautiful. I worship you. You're so generous. I worship you for being generous. Mm, it's so good. So I want to talk about the self a little bit because the little tyrant to be pitied but certainly not to be coddled is something that, oh my gosh, this culture just exalts as we've explained the offended self. George MacDonald has a wonderful sermon entitled Self-Denial. You can probably find it online. Um, but he says here, it is not to thwart or tease the poor self, Jesus tells us. That was not the purpose for which God gave it to us. He tells us that we must leave it altogether, yield it, deny it, refuse it, lose it. Thus only shall we save it. Thus only shall we have a share in our own being. The self is given to us that we may sacrifice it. It is ours that we, like Christ, may have something to offer. Not that we should torment it, but that we should simply deny it. Okay? And then he says, what does this mean? This, we must refuse, abandon, deny self as a ruling or determining element in us. It must no longer be the regent of our action. In other words, the simple thing that I do, and I'm trying to practice this every day, is Jesus, I surrender the self-life to you. I'm not hating the self. I'm not mocking it. I'm not berating the self. I'm not adding accusation upon it. I'm just surrendering it and saying, that self in me that really can be the little tyrant or the pouting adolescent, right? Poor me. I just surrender to you, God. It needs to be redeemed by you. And no amount of self-effort can cure the self, right? You have to turn it over 
I think it's Lewis in Mere Christianity that says, you can never really have a self until you first give it to God. You know, it's interesting where my mind goes with that is a fascinating conversation with a friend recently where I was talking about like wanting to be more intentional with my time. And that was a place that I wanted to see God work and how I was using it. His kind of comeback was really fascinating because his first question was like, well, what are you motivated by? And I was like, well, you know, to motivated by to do more things. And he eventually just kind of put his cards on the table and was like, look, if your motivation is like, I should be better than this, then that's actually like a sneaky way of triumphing pride of like, well, I use my time well and I'm effective. And he's like, Mm. versus if you actually kind of recognize that it already is God's and you're responding it and offering, like Mm. that's a much better starting place. I think of all the places that act of, handing the self over. We've mentioned before that, you know, the solution of the self isn't the dissolution of the self. It's actually like the submission in love to God. Yes. It actually, you know, then makes the way for like all kinds of like loving, compassionate, redemptive action. But out of that Mm. union, not the self in isolation, Mm. but the self-life given over Which, by the way, again, the worthiness of Jesus, like, given over because he has the right to ask for it. Yes. And so, all those little ways you see that playing out, gang, if you're normally, you know, first one on the chairlift, let someone else be first on the chairlift. If you, you know, are normally the one to take the biggest piece of pie, give somebody else the biggest piece of pie. Just just little choices you can make through the day that just says, self, I'm not going to let you rule. And then particularly offense, right? You and I have swapped a number of times back and forth. The passage is the glory of a king to overlook an offense. And it's so freaking hard. Uh, I was so concerned you were going to ask for an anecdote. Because I'm like, yeah, man, I love that proverb. But it is much easier to kind of treasure offenses because they're kind of nice. Like, mm. there actually is a measurable wrong done to the self, which exactly. kind of informs right. that overwhelming experience of right. being slighted that a lot of people live with. But to not even take it into your accounting, mm. like, as a life-changing practice. It is, because it you want to break agreements with offense, gang. You really do. And where you see offense cropping up in your life, where you see resentment, cropping up in your life. You you really want to begin by breaking agreement with it. Now, I understand it may be utterly justified. People do offensive things. People are offensive. You live in a culture of the triumph of the offended self. So what you have are all these offended selves out there driving around, cutting in on you at the market, taking your place in the theater, you know, getting on social media and saying all kinds of things. I understand. There is lots of actual offense taking place. But the point is, is you do not want to join in on that. You just don't. And this morning, I had a little victory, I will say. I had a little victory this morning. I was checking email before we came into the studio, and somebody had sent me the most offensive email. Oh, my gosh. And, and, you know, people who take it upon themselves to, you know, correct one another and set us straight or whatever. And... And the thing was, it was so baseless, and I had such a delicious reply. Oh, yeah. The problem is, I actually have a fairly swift sword, (laughs) 
And I, I was just ready to just wing off this two-sentence reply. And Jesus is like, why, why? Why, why are you? Don't even entertain offense. Let it go, John. Just hit delete. Just don't, you don't want to give ground to that. It's sad, but it's true. But I think that many people's offenses are one of their treasured things. If you want an experiment in both of these, I would encourage you to just go, you know, spend 20 minutes scrolling through your Facebook feed and then kind of watch the two things that happen. Like the offense you start taking at like your cousin or whoever it is who like posts something that you think is foolish. Like the offense that you take, it convinces you of your rightness in the world, right? Mm. Because like Mm. you have the right opinion. You're indignant on the side of justice. Like whatever it is, your offense feeds the self. And then I can't think of a better place to actually try practicing that exercise of like, wow, do you actually have the ability to see someone do something or say something that you think is kind of foolish and not take it upon yourself as the harbinger of justice to do something about it or not treasure it throughout (laughs) your day, but simply to go like, meh, we just won't count that one. Yeah. Where's the other place you you were headed? Oh, Facebook. No, that's, it's all one place. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, boy, it sure is. Facebook or family reunions. And then gang, we're just trying to kind of offer some stepping stones out of the quagmire of the offended self and of the breeding ground of envy. Oh my goodness, gratitude. Gratitude and just beginning a practice of giving thanks. I know it just, it sounds so like obvious and maybe even a little trivial and and, and kind of, I don't know, like a platitude, but I had told the story last time about the fishing trip with Morgan and me not catching anything and him catching things. And I learned that at our lunch break, you know, but then we were going to go back out on the river and and I go back out and don't catch things. I'm still not successful, but I just knew, man, my happiness right now is totally dependent on being grateful for what God is giving rather than focusing on what he isn't giving. And so I just began to look around and I'm like, God, thank you for this. I get to be by a river today. I'm, I'm the richest man in the world. And wow, spring has finally come and, and it's green and it's beautiful. And whoa, there goes a hummingbird. And like, thank you for that. It's just two crazy things come to mind. One, it's just fascinating and helpful. It's kind of a tool that in most of the Romance languages, and the languages that descended from Latin, that gratitude, gratis, and freedom are co-equivalent. Like, you can swap them out. Like, you're free so far as you're grateful. Your freedom is part of your gratitude. And it's fascinating. Demonstrably, in human psychology, did you know that you actually cannot enjoy things that you're not grateful for? It's true. Like, the reward sentence of your brain, unless you are responding and like, wow, thank you, Lord, for that hummingbird. Like, Mm. you can't actually enjoy the hummingbird. And the nice thing that I've found is you suggested some of these things at different times, especially that, like, it's not what God isn't giving, it's what he is giving. If you don't feel very grateful, I found personally, like, your capacity can be increased by practicing. Yeah. And if you want some incentive, not only will it help you out of the quagmire of envy, but there's, like, a pretty straight correlation to the level of joy that you'll be able to feel about your life. Yes. Um, 
and your response in gratitude to what God is giving. Yes. And we mentioned the research done on social media gang. Like, you know, the effect of social media is pretty devastating in the area of the lack of gratitude. You know, my life is not what someone else's could be. And so you you might want to begin to wean yourself from some of that and just get out of that whole cultural thing of just extracting yourself from the culture of comparison and envy and and the offended self. We live at a time where the evil one has really seized the day. He's really seized the day. And, and I don't mean like terrorism or human trafficking, although those are obviously, obviously from hell. What I mean is, is this triumph of the offended self that provides such a breeding ground for all the seven deadly sins, but particularly of envy and like going, you know what? I don't want to participate in that. I don't want to be at that party. I I want to choose a kingdom mentality. I want to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I I want to be grateful. I I want to rejoice when the prodigal comes home and not pout about it. (laughs) I don't want to be offended at God. Uh, for the way he expresses his generosity in the world and that we aren't all the same. I want to live in the kingdom. I want to live in the kingdom economy of these things. And we thought that that would be helpful to you as well, uh, dear ones. So thanks for listening to our series on Envy here on the Ransomed Heart Podcast with John Eldridge and my son, Blaine.